All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm talking to you from New York City here on the uh, second day of April, 2019. And uh, I'd like to remind you that I am the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. Uh, which you can subscribe to by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. You can also call our office here in New York, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426 during normal work hours in New York City. I would also encourage you to consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling, uh, especially if you're interested in the biotech sector. Chen has a lot of great ideas and has done very well for himself and for his subscribers over the years in that sector as well as oil and gas and to, a, to an extent also uh, in the precious metals sector. And of course, Michael Oliver uh, will be with us in just a few minutes and we always like to point you to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com uh, to uh, sign up for Michael's letter. We'll be talking to Michael, as I said, just in a, in a couple of minutes from now. Uh, I do want to thank you for listening, making this show one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel, and also encourage you to send your comments, whatever they may be, to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com, questions at number four, taylor at gmail.com. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Sponsors for this week's show, Noble Resources, Triumph Gold, Miramont Resources, Great Bear Resources, and Klondike Gold. I've titled today's show, With QT Ending, What Now for Gold? John Rubino, John Anderson, and as I said, Michael Oliver are uh, a guest today. Jay Powell's pivot from quantitative tightening gave Wall Street crybabies the candy they screamed for as equities peered over the abyss in late 2018. China added massive stimulus as well. So at least for the moment, disaster has been averted for Jim Cramer and the other crybabies. The pathology of the global financial system has taken perhaps its first final step toward total financial annihilation because it's obvious now that central banks will never be able to allow debt markets to return to their equilibrium levels, at least not until there is a total reset of the existing system. Capitalism without price discovery of capital cannot last for long, stands to reason. And that is the main reason why our existing bastardized financial system which is more akin to monetary fascism, I would argue, is on its last leg. At least that's the way I see it, and a lot of other people that appear on this show, I think, are in agreement with that. We will discuss with John Rubino those uh, financial dynamics and how they urgently necessitate the exchange of fiat money for gold now, very soon, if not immediately, 
before your fiat money becomes worthless. Now, of course, there's lots of people who think the dollar will last forever. Uh, there's no reason to doubt that. And, uh, well, we'll get Michael Oliver's ideas about that in just a second. Uh, after the first commercial break, John Anderson will update us on Triumph Gold's emerging world-class gold copper project in the Yukon. Uh, but now, as I say, we do have Michael with us. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with me because you always, uh, let's say for those of us who are nervous Nellies in the gold sector, uh, your hand-holding is helpful. So we want to talk about gold, but... Um, well, actually, let's start with gold, because you put out something very interesting a few hours ago. Um, gold, a temporary strategy, if you're panicked. Could you possibly pass along what your thoughts are and, and what words of, of comfort you might have for those of us gold bugs that are a little bit nervous, because we're just seeing gold meander around going nowhere? Right. Well, it, that's what's happened since basically the December high, which was just above 1300 uh, first off, we at MSA, Momentum Structural Analysis, we do look at price, and uh, we, we see all the things that the price chart reports see. And right now, they, of course, see a short-term basis of, over the last three months, a head-and-shoulder topping pattern. Uh -huh. right. One of their favorite orthodox patterns. It's been around for a long time. Edwards and McGee invented it and defined it and so forth. And Sometimes it's valid, sometimes it's not. Momentum right now doesn't agree with that potential topping pattern. Price looks like it's going to lock you for a loop and take you into low 1200s. That's always possible. Maybe we're wrong this time. But when we look at uh, momentum action, weekly momentum action, which is to say fairly short term, over the last several months, we see something totally different in momentum than we see on that chart. We see a process that looks like it's aged on the downside. Uh, it's had three waves of selling pressure, and you can even see those on the price chart. Mm -hmm. But in the price chart, what it's been has been sideways action, really, oscillating above and below that December high trade, which is late December was at 1300 So you've been up to 1340 you've been down to 1275 so you've been swinging above and below that level. Today we're 1292 uh, or so uh, on the cash yep. market. And mm -hmm. um, so you're slightly below the December high, but it's been basically a sideways price action. Momentum, meanwhile, well, that's gone on. It's price going sideways. Momentum has been trending down, but developing a structure such that if you plot the momentum chart, you could draw a trend line down through the action of, of the past three months that says you're ripe for an upturn. Uh, and it won't take anything but uh, something on the order of 1310 or a little higher in the next week or so uh, on a weekly close to turn it back up. And as far as we're concerned, when we look at momentum, we see a potential for the turn that looks highly likely, and the price chart looks scary. So, you know, we have to take that in, into account. But usually when they're in sync, you can believe the price chart. Right now the price chart looks negative, potentially. Momentum says, nope, I'm about through, mm -hmm. through with the downside corrective process. Mm -hmm. So that's what we think. But anyway, we sent out a, a recommendation that if you're, you're scared, basically you could put puts on underneath your gold market if you hold a gold position, or you could sell calls, whatever your choice may be. And your yeah. risk is really only about 1%, the cost of that risk control. Because mm -hmm. if we go up about 1% or more from where we are right now, you can take it off, because this is over. We're going back up. So mm -hmm. our, our positive shift number that gets this intermediate action back to the upside is uh, not far you know, above us, a percent or more above where the current market is. So the risk of putting on a hedge is pretty small. You're not going to mm -hmm. really miss much by doing it. We don't suggest that, but if you're nervous, you can do it, uh, because it's not a costly expedition to put on uh, some risk control. Right. Uh, we don't think it's necessary, but... Mm -hmm. uh, That'll be very yeah. interesting 
put that in measurement against the S&P, which has, of course, been trekking upward, uh, whereas gold has been trekking downward over the last couple months in a regular process. S&P has been at a slower pace than January, has been trekking upward. And we've now got a, a pattern on the S&P that is somewhat the reverse of what the gold is. So it's going to be mm-hmm. interesting the next few days, I think, to see some of the resolution of, of these actions, probably mm-hmm. contrary to one another. Yeah, it's, uh, well, you know, I mean, it, there's sort of the conventional wisdom is that central bankers can always come through and save us. And, uh, you know, we saw the, the market peering over the abyss. It seemed like we were starting oh, into a yeah. real a real bear market uh, towards well, the end of last year. And then Jim, Jim Cramer throws a hissy fit and Powell pivots. And all of a sudden, uh, China prints money and all of a sudden we're onward and upward again. And who uh, who needs gold? Uh, there's no reason. I mean, you just, right, 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 right. Well, they they've shown their hand. That's for sure. Uh, if the Fed was the reluctant one among among the major central banks of the developed economies, Europe and Japan, uh, it's now back in that camp with the BOJ and the ECB. Uh, we'll print whatever whatever is needed. We'll create artificial interest rates below reality for however long we need to in order to protect the stock market. And there's no question about it. That's why they acted. But remember, this happened in 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Kramer came up with the they-know-nothing slogan, meaning the Fed, Fed had mm-hmm. been raising rates gradually in 2006 or so, and uh, the market dove in 2007 from a spring high, a 1560 area, I think, on the S&P, down to a 1370 in August. Mm-hmm. A good drop. The Fed panicked, Bernanke panicked. He came in with guns a-blazing, and two months later, new highs. Okay, so you could say the same thing then. Yeah. Oh, the Fed did wrong. They reversed course. They're back. They're now the friend of the stock market, and they were. Mm-hmm. In fact, when the stock market peaked after that Bernanke rally, about ten or twenty S and P points above the high that had occurred early in two thousand seven, the bear market that followed, they fought it all the way down, but couldn't stop it. So all mm-hmm. I can say is, it's happened before. Don't be deluded by the yeah. assumption that it can go on forever. Um, right. It's, it's almost precisely the same thing. The only difference this time is the period of distortion that we've seen in ter- terms of monetary expansion, but especially interest rate levels, has been much longer. Therefore, mm-hmm. the negative consequences that are embedded in the economy in various and sundry places has got to be far greater than it was in 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. there's a lot more error to expose in the next downturn. Mm-hmm. And so it's even yeah. going to be more difficult for the central banks to stop that next hemorrhaging. Yeah, I don't know where they're going to go with the interest rates so low already and uh, possibly what do you want to own <laughs> more and more of them going negative already. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's unconventional, to say the least. Well, I, I just looking at one of your charts here, the S&P 500, uh, looks like a real topping pattern, just the price charts. And then if I look at your, uh, at your momentum chart, and this is a monthly chart that you're showing in your last weekend report, uh, it looks very toppish, doesn't it? Yes, it does. In other words, price looks like it's beating its chest. You come back yeah. up near the high. You haven't done what you did in 2007, which is in October you made a marginal new high, just enough to cheer for about a week or so. Uh, mm-hmm. This time they've tried to get back to the high. They may or may not do it. I suspect they won't. The next few days should be pretty revealing um, mm-hmm. as to whether they can or can't push this thing back toward the high. As I put it this way, S&P right now is 28.60 plus, um, and if you see it down a couple percent below here, any time in the next few weeks, it's probably not going to make a new high. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to oh. cave from a lower high. All righty. Uh, getting back with just about a minute left here, but getting back to gold, uh, what sort of price do you think we might be seeing that would take us through now? I mean, uh, it's a pretty level top that you showed, a gradually declining top. But what kind of level do you think we need to see? Uh, so we see, get 1% or so on gold upwards, and you think we might be yeah, through and on to some, some blue sky? I obviously, I can't ex- expose the numbers because we have paying subscribers who pay sure. for the numbers. But uh, it doesn't take a lot to turn it up. Uh, you can look at a price chart and see uh, the last two highs were 12, uh, 1344 in February, uh-huh. and then a high a few weeks ago at, uh, I think it was uh, 1325 area. And so you could reference either of those if you're a price chart watcher and say if you mm-hmm. take those out, then you're going up. Uh, we've got much lower numbers than that. Remember, yeah. Gold turns from here. It doesn't need, even need to go back to 1325. There's some levels between here and there that would say to us, this whole process of sideways correction, in effect, which is what it's been, uh, is over. And we're no. resuming the upside again. All right. We'll have to leave it go at that. Uh, thanks again, Michael, for being with us. And uh, always always okay. great to have you. You're always very helpful to, uh, to me and to our listeners. So thanks so much for being with us again. Already, uh, folks, we do have to go to break, but don't go away because John Anderson is going to be with me. He's the chairman of the Board of Triumph Gold, one of my favorite stock picks one that I own, and, uh, well, I think you'll want to hear what John has to say because I really truly believe they could be on to one of the major new gold discoveries in the Yukon. Uh, So don't go away. We'll be right back with John Anderson. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQB, is a gold exploration company focused on their wholly owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District of Ontario, Canada. Recent drill results yielded an impressive 1,600 grams per ton gold over 0.7 meters near surface. GBR is fully funded to drill 300 plus holes this year. McEwen Mining is a significant shareholder following a $5.7 million investment as part of a recent $10 million financing. Visit greatbearresources.ca. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have John Anderson with me once again. He is the chairman of the board of directors of Triumph Gold, and he has a lot of years, over 20 years of capital market experience. He's brought together a team of very strong scientists, geoscientists, uh, on, into the company, uh, and uh, the combination of, of good, strong technical people along with the ability to raise money and do so efficiently, I think, is one of the uh, one of the reasons that I like Triumph Gold so so much. And I'm familiar with the project because I had covered it in my newsletter under a prior operator. Uh, they had uh, discovered well, they had more than four million gold equivalent ounces on a couple of different deposits up there. Uh, but then uh, after 2011, uh, the markets really uh, didn't perform well. It was uh, very difficult. It was a, would have required a big capital cost. Uh, the grades are somewhat low, given especially given lower uh, prices, and so uh, that company had to uh, hand hand the project off uh, to uh, to um, to John Anderson's team. Uh, and I should mention before I say hello to John that Triumph Gold trades in Toronto under the symbol TIG. You can buy it in the U.S. as I have under the symbol TIGCF. Eighty-one point six million shares, twenty-seven cents in U.S. money, giving it a market cap of approximately $22 million in U.S. funds, which I think is a steal given what the prospects are. So thanks for joining me, John. We want to hear about your story and what you've learned uh, over the past year or two. Thanks for joining me again. Jay, thanks for having us. I uh, really, really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you well, and, I just and appre- again. Yeah, I just really appreciate having good stories come on my, my show as well. Um, I, I would like you to start out for the benefit of those that may not be familiar with the story. Many have; they've heard you on before. You are, or your assist, your uh, chief geologist there. Uh, but talk about how Triumph has has approached this project a bit differently than the prior operator, who had some success, admittedly, but obviously couldn't couldn't take it to the finish line. Yeah, uh, th- thanks for that, Jay. Uh, as far as the the former operators, what they were really uh, they came out with a, a really good project. Um, they consolidated a you know a fantastic piece of property which was blessed with uh, with uh, infrastructure in a in a remote part of the area of the world, and they did you know they did really good work on it. Uh, if anything that they failed in was really just the market conditions. It, it was not their failure. It was just the, the overall market. Uh, in 2014, after they'd come up with a, a PA with um, a preliminary economic ass- uh, assessment on the property, uh, they had found the 343101 uh, resources that, uh, that had a, a gold equivalent uh, of over 6 million ounces. Um, in 2014, they just... You know, no one cared about gold. No one cared about copper, and and that's where uh, we came in as shareholders, uh, really to backstop the company. Um, mm-hmm. So we didn't really change much outside of uh, changing the name and 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 refinancing it with uh, with a long term approach. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, um, it had a, a, a substantial resource on it, uh-huh. and even even at today's market price of of, of gold. Those resources didn't have a lot of uh, validity, um, so we knew we had a project that at a higher commodity price, higher copper price, but really a higher gold price than than twelve hundred and fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. We took it over. That in the future it would have uh, it would ha- you know have an incredible value for the shareholders. Sure. So that's why we got behind this thing mm-hmm. and uh, and put enough 
money in to move it forward. And uh, we didn't have any property payments on it. We've cleaned up the royalties. The property's in great standing. But what happened up in the Yukon um, in 2016 was a company called Gold Corp uh, paid $520 million for a project 50 kilometers northwest of us called the Coffee Project. Mm-hmm. And that really gave everyone in the Yukon uh, a bump. Uh, I think Gold Corp even called it the Gold Corp bump, and, and everyone started looking at the Yukon differently, and and we were definitely one of those of those stories. So we knew we had a resource that was valid in the future, but now we had to look at the project differently. And mm-hmm. and really that's what we created a new team for. Mm-hmm. Well, and you did, and you brought on some really strong people. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your 2018 uh, exploration success. You you came up with a, a number of new zones. Uh, you did a lot of soil sampling, I guess, and this is a very major size project, isn't it? I mean, we're looking at, what, six or eight kilometers in strike length, something like that? Uh, yeah, that's just on the one target. The property is actually 200 square kilometers. Yeah. It's uh, over 20 miles for the American listeners from one end end. It's about five times the size of uh, of Manhattan. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot was going on. So, you know, rather than just focus on, on our little resource or the resource that we had in, in two areas of the property, we hired someone independently to look at the project. Uh, our largest shareholder at the time, Gold 2000 out of Zurich, and myself, we, we wanted to look at the project differently. So we hired this gentleman, Tony Baresi, to look at the project independently. And it wasn't, don't be biased by the resource. Don't be biased by what you're hearing. Just look at the project differently. And, and that's where Tony came in and mm-hmm. was so excited and, and came up with five different exploration ideas and that uh, that we we went and raised more money for him. Uh, Gold Corp loved the story. They loved Tony's enthusiasm. Uh, so they bought 20% of the company in, in 2017. And, and you asked me about what we did 2018. It really goes back to 2017. And it was those exploration ideas that Tony came up with with his crew and followed up on on on, on five of those ideas and, and successfully hit on four of those ideas. And so I do want to stress that as much as we came up with great results last year, it really came back to the, the, the program that Tony put together in 2017. 2018 was a follow-up of that, those uh, exploration successes, because exploration is a long-term um, um, process, and we uh, we're, we're well into that process right now. In 2018, we were able to confirm those initial discoveries from 2017, and we think we're onto something that is really exciting as far as a, a world class potential copper gold uh, porphyry that would stand out as one of the largest in the world. It's already the largest, uh, most successful one in the Yukon. Yeah, well, you. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't get get that last part. That's that's the one we refer to as uh, as uh, blue sky porphyry. Yes, exactly, and that's sort of towards uh, I think the southeastern end of the of of the target of the project. Uh, it, pretty much in the East. center, maybe a little bit bit yeah. to the north, the south the south end, the tint of polymetallic uh, discovery. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and what we're trying to do is 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 confirm what we we believe that. Uh, uh, we drilled down 600 kilometer or 600 meters, sorry, uh, yeah. below the surface. So all of our, our our resources are right at surface, and we drilled down deeper, and we hit uh, phenomenal grades in porphyry mineralization, where 
to the average listener, it's if we had to put it in, uh, it, it's it's multiple to the value of the rock on a per ton basis. But mm-hmm. we had 0.3, 0.4% copper with one, one and a half uh, gram gold over 300 meters on a number of intercepts. And mm-hmm. to put that in an equation, that type of deposit would be, uh, if it was a porphyry all alone, it would be the equivalent of um, uh, new gold's property that they have, the new Afton mine. It's an underground uh, block cave mine. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a cash cow for them. These are the type of projects that the majors love and the big companies like because they're long-term massive projects. And so what we've done, since we've only drilled down 600 meters, we've done an IP survey now that is 1.2 kilometers deep. And, uh, and it's uh, over an area that's uh, underneath the, a very large, intense soil anomaly that's six square kilometers. Mm. So you think of it, our resource sits on top of that rated surface, and below there you, you have potentially one of the, of the largest elephants in, uh, in the world as far as an exploration potential. And uh, yeah. we, you know, for your listeners, I think you can look at Soul Gold in Australia. They have mm-hmm. the uh, Cascabel Project. And they were just like us. It was the same type of project where uh, a few years ago uh, they had a, a great soil anomaly with copper, gold, uh, lead, zinc, just similar to what we have. And then they did data collection and they did an exploration to find area that was two and a half by one kilometers areas. Ours is you know much more larger than that. It's six kilometers by two kilometers, same type. So mm-hmm. they they came out with a, an outcrop. Uh, uh, in a creek uh, that showed there was porphyry mineralization and veining. That's what we came up with in 2016. 2017, we've tested a bit lower, and that's very similar, same process of what uh, Solgold did in, uh, in um, 2013. And they went from a $30 million market cap to, well, they're at $1.2 for 80% of a project. Wow, and that's what we're yeah. That's, that's uh, I was familiar with that. I, I I was watching it develop. Actually, there was a another company that was a prospect generator that had that had that and and uh, farmed it out. I guess to the to the Australian right. company. It was so the, what's that? Yeah, it was Cornerstone. They still have a twenty percent. That's right. In it. Exactly. Okay. All right. So um, yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at your website. I mean, the one the one. Uh, the, the intersection was uh, 316 meters, 1.1 gram per ton gold, which is, I mean, that's just really amazing. And then a half, you had some, co- you had some silver there. You had 0.27 percent copper. I mean, that's phenomenal. But are you going to be testing that this year with any deep holes? That is the blue sky target. That is that is definitely the number one target for sure. Is we're going to do some more work around blue sky to better vector in, and then uh, as Tony Bressy said, we're going to drill the uh, the deepest hole into the Yukon's richest porphyry, mm-hmm. and and again test that theory out. And it's not just he's not the only one that has this theory. There are many other people that have the theory, including uh, our largest shareholder, which is uh, which is Goldcorp. And Goldcorp has had their financial challenges recently to an extent. Um, do you see them sticking with you? I do. Uh, I think, you know, they're going through their final merger that uh, uh, I think everyone now expects should be closing. Uh, they expect it to be closed uh, somewhere second quarter of this year. Uh, I think that's still on schedule from what I hear. 
they've been phenomenal. Their technical team still talks to our technical team. In fact, uh, Newmont, who's buying them or merging with them, mm-hmm. I should say, their technical people are up to speed with what we're doing. So mm-hmm. what we publicly say right now, they're all in as far as, uh, as, as, far as working with us in the, in the future. Good. Okay, that's good to know. So you have uh, made a lot of uh, discoveries this year, too. The the drone zone is one I've noticed. It's some phenomenal grab samples on surface. Uh, the Granger zone, it's, a, uh, I think, a relatively shallow oxide target. I mean, are you going to be able to look at some of those this year as well, some of those new we, targets? We these are these are cost-effective, and these are, and as I mentioned earlier, in 2016, 2017, where Tony and his group came together with these exploration ideas, they're all things that we're following up on and they're all in different stages and, and they're actually pretty inef- uh, inexpensive to go and follow up on. Uh, there's also the Irene vein that we came up with last year. It was mm-hmm. a, a vein that was opened up by Placer Miners in 2013 and again the former management just didn't have the capital to go test it. Tony tested it last year with, with his team and uh, we extended a, an area that was one, you know, 400 meters, never drilled to 1.2 kilometers, and, and think it's much larger. Um, that epithermal vein alone would be the equivalent of what some of the market caps for some of our competitors are. Mm-hmm. Uh, the drone zone is, is is a great example where it just by having good crews and, and looking at the property differently, being on site as opposed to doing everything remotely finding these things and following up on them. And and that's what exploration is really all about as well. It's 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 it, it it's looking, following up and, and testing these ideas and the success ratio uh that this company has has actually had on these various projects are, are phenomenal. I would agree. Uh, watching a lot of companies as I do, and not only that, but they're very large targets and the kind of targets that could uh that are that are already getting the interest, as I understand it, interest of majors, obviously at Gold Corp. Um, so, how soon can you start uh, work up there? Um, how soon, John, can you start working up there? We, we we could start right away. Last year we started in late March, but um, that was mainly because we were doing winter drilling in an area that uh, that it was, it was just more effective to do it during the winter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are aiming probably late May, middle mm-hmm. middle middle late May. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just going through the proper processes, uh, dealing with uh, one of our, our major shareholders who has a strong technical uh, uh, committee with them, and and really uh, pinpointing what uh, w- where we're going to drill. Um, mm-hmm. It is very scientific. It is not just random drilling that a lot of course you know, not. A lot of shareholders think you do. No, it's no, very scientific <laughs> and very calculated. Uh, most people have no idea the amount of science that goes into the uh, exploration business these days, that's for sure. So we might expect some news, and uh, how soon? I guess we're looking at May, we, June. I, yeah, I think you'll see news uh, uh, month-end, before month-end for sure. Uh, month end, got this more results coming out. And mm-hmm. we still got more results from the deep IP oh, survey. Good. Um, as much as people think it's, you know, it's amazing, you do a, a, an IP survey, you go down 1.2 kilometer, there's a lot of data that comes out of it, a lot of interpretation. It's, it's not like an x-ray, like on the human body, it's like an MRI, and you've got to learn how to interpret it and, and get the right people to interpret it. So uh, mm-hmm. there is a lot going on behind the scenes. And, okay. And, uh, I'm really proud of the way that our technical team has been handling it, with uh, obviously with the Gold Corp people as well. Yeah. Well, all I can say is that with a market cap, 
$22 million U.S. money right now, and given what it looks like you might have, the uh, it looks very, very exciting, uh, I think, for people that would that would take the risk. Um, obviously, always a risky business exploration. But boy, you've had so much success, as you're pointing out, as you're pointing out, and uh, and some really large scale targets. I think the the odds look very, very good for you, and that's why it's one of my favorites. Uh, I guess that's about all the time we have. Anything else, uh, real quickly? No, Jay. I just really appreciate the time you uh, you give us, and and you know we've got a, a company that's got an incredible risk reward uh, opportunity for for you and your investors, and mm-hmm. and the market cap for what we've got, the resources, the book value. Uh, everyone that wants to look at this company, you have pretty well got a a free shot on uh, probably one of the best exploration targets in the world right now. And again. I can't thank all the investors and 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 people like yourself that have supported us over the last few years. All righty. Thank you very much, uh, John, for being with us, and we'll look to keep up with your story uh, as things unfold into this year. Thank you so much. Well, folks, don't go away. John Rubino is going to be with us. We're going to talk to him about uh, the topic of the day, which is with QT ending, what now for gold? Don't go away. We'll be right back with John Rubino. Triumph Gold holds a 100% interest in the district-scale Free Gold Mountain Gold Copper Project in Yukon with a government-maintained road accessing their 200-square-kilometer property. The 2018 drill program has resulted in exciting discoveries to date, hitting the richest intersection ever in a porphyry system in Yukon. The company is well-funded and has a large institutional holding, including Gold Corp and Zijin Mining. Triumph trades on the TSX Venture under the symbol TIG and the OTC markets TIGCF. The website is triumphgoldcorp.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have one of our more frequent guests, John Rubino, with me once again. He's, of course, uh, the proprietor of the very popular website, dollarcollapse.com. He's co-author of several books, uh, well, a couple of them, at least with James Turk. Uh, and, uh, of course, Dollar Collapse is the one that, um, that has made him most famous, I suppose. Thanks for joining me again, John. 
Hey, Jay, good to talk to you again. Always good to have you. Um, your ongoing uh, understanding of what's happening in the in the capital markets, uh, your, your past on Wall Street, of course, is a, uh, in the capital markets, uh, very valuable. Uh, so I want to... You know, we want to talk today about what quantitative tightening, the ending of QT, might mean for gold. So I'd like to maybe look a little bit at, at the economy. And, and, of course, we saw a, an abrupt change by uh, Chairman Powell just recently. Uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth, who was a guest on our show just recently, I know she was a big fan of Chairman Powell before he, and as he was entering the, uh, chairman, the position of chairman of the Fed. Um, and, you know, he, she thought that he really would hang tough, that he would really uh, allow the markets to go where they need to go for price discovery of capital. And he started out doing that, it seems, very well, very, very firmly. Um, but then very abruptly, after the equity market started to, started to cause a lot of people a lot of anxiety towards the end of last year, and very early this year, he did what... Uh, what some people refer to as the Powell pivot. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, is it justified? Was he justified, John, do you think, in, in suddenly reversing QT to, if not, I don't know if it's going to be quantitative easing, but at least uh, taking QT off the table? Well, the, the term justified might not apply too well to today's monetary policy because, you know, there's uh, there's really no rhyme or reason other than short-term survival to anything we've done since really the 1990s. But um, bringing it a little closer to the present, if you went back six months ago, mm -hmm. all the, the world's major central banks were either tightening or preparing the markets for tightening. Uh -huh. um, the Bank of Japan was talking about it. The ECB was talking about it. The Fed had actually begun to tighten. And then the global financial system spun out of control. In, in October, November, and December, uh, we had an instant bear market. Uh, the price of pretty much everything crashed. And that terrified the central banks because they, they know how much bad debt there is out there. And they know that um, a sustained bear market in equities would throw the, um, the wealth effect into reverse. In other words, when your stocks are up, you feel smart and you spend more money. When your stocks are down, you feel stupid and you spend less. So that has a, a ratcheting effect on the economy. Stocks go down, the economy slows down. That makes stocks go down even further. And, and you run the risk of a death spiral in a highly leveraged system like this one that you can't get out of. They know that. Um, so the, um, the volatility in the market towards the end of 2018 um, completely changed the attitude of the world's central banks. You know, where they were tightening before, now they're either neutral or they're, they're loosening again. So we basically saw the tightening for this cycle, you know, mm -hmm. of, what, 150 basis points on the yeah. Fed funds rate? <laughs> and that was it. And on oh, a little bit of a runoff from the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, but the other central banks didn't even get to tighten. They just got to talk about tightening before they had to reverse course. So now we've got basically um, global easing from the world's central banks of, of various types and at, at you know various rates of acceleration. But all of them are... Um, feeding more money into the system and either cutting interest rates or keeping them at like negative levels now. And then the Fed, you know, the speculation with the Fed is when are they going to do the first cut? 
mm-hmm. which is creating an interesting dynamic in the market because now bad news is good news. Yeah. Where, for instance, if we, um, you know, uh, three store chains, JCPenney, Payless, and Lifeway, announced that between them they're going to close 3,000 stores. Now, normally wow. that's bad news for the economy, right? Yeah. But if it brings us closer to that first Fed interest rate cut, it's actually good news for the financial markets. So you saw stocks rocket on, you know, German manufacturing is in recession and um, U.S. retail sales were down in the last report. And we got some bad factory numbers um, just lately. And all of that stuff is normally bad, but currently good, because um, if it keeps up, the Fed's going to have to cut interest rates sooner rather than later. And that's what everybody's looking for. When when can we start lowering rates again? You know, they all want to know that because that puts a lot more money into the hands of uh, the big banks and financial speculators in general. Um, and that levitates financial asset prices. So we're back there again. <laughs> well, it seems to me, John, that uh, what you're saying is the the economy is the stock market. In other words, the stock market is the driver for the economy. It seems to me that it wasn't always that way. It seems to me, I recall a time when the real economy was the driver and the stock market was sort of um, followed the real the real economy. So if, if earnings went up, if uh, the economy was strong, uh, the you know the investments would go into the equity market. A capital could be raised more efficiently to for startups, for new, for new or for expansion of existing businesses and so forth. But now it's almost as if the stock market is the end all. Or if if the stock market crashes, the whole system crashes. And in, instead of being based on the real economy, it's based on this sort of phantom economy. It seems. Yeah, we used to have an industrial economy, which is a, an essentially healthy thing, and now we've evolved into a financially or a financialized economy, mm-hmm. which is extremely unhealthy because the product of financial institutions is debt, and you put them in charge, and it's it's like putting the car companies in charge of the economy. Well, we'd all own three or four cars, right? If the yeah. uh, the government made cars, uh, but in this case. The government makes debt. If you assume that the big banks and the Fed and the Treasury Department are all part of one organization now, whose job is to grow, um, they do that by um, creating more credit in the system. And and so, surprise, surprise, everybody's debt is soaring, and that's inherently unstable. You know, you can only borrow so much money before your your life collapses around you. Whether you're a person or a country, it all works the same way. And, and so, we're deeply into that process right now. Well, there have been an awful lot of people, and I can remember some college professors that, that didn't agree with what you just said. They said that uh, the government can borrow endless amounts of money. And indeed, that seems to be what what our government is doing, and a lot of other governments are doing. The idea that you can continue to print money, that you're a sovereign, and that you can always pay your debts back by printing more money. Why would that not be true going forward? I mean, why would that not be? It seems to have worked out quite well. We've had a major hiccup in 2008, I guess maybe more than a hiccup, but but I think most people, John, that don't think about these things as seriously as, as some of us do, are just assuming that, you know, it can leave it in the hands of the federal, these brilliant PhD economists at the Fed, and they're going to always save us. Why can't well, that go on forever? Well, Jay, you, you said there used to be a lot of economists who would have said that's no problem. Um, actually, they're, they're still around, and <laughs> they're still running yeah. things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Krugman and, and people like that. Yeah. 
in, in Keynesian macroeconomics, which is the guiding philosophy of today's ruling class, yeah, that doesn't matter. All right. Yeah, it's a, it, yeah, it's a, it's a philosophy or it's a, not a science. Oh no, no, it's nothing like a science. Uh, it, you know, if it was a science, it would have been disproven by now by by recent results. But um, it, but it, what it also is is a rationalization for people doing what they want to do anyhow. You know, the, the, the big banks and the political class benefit hugely from a government that creates a huge amount of new credit and then creates a lot of new money to pay off the new credit because they get that money first. So this is the best possible world for them. And they create um, rationalizations, which debt doesn't matter is the big one, um, to justify their behavior because they want to keep getting richer. Um, but of course, you know, common sense says that that does matter. You, when you borrow money, you get to spend it and that feels good, but then you eventually have to pay that money off. Uh, and that feels bad. And it, um, it, it, it messes up your life if you've borrowed too much money. And the fact that governments have a printing press gives them a little more leeway. That's the equivalent of uh, a mailbox full of pre-approved credit card applications for a person, right? You can keep getting money um, that you don't have to do anything for, at least for a long time. But in the case of governments using an electronic printing press to create more currency, uh, they're able, for instance, to control interest rates, at least um, in, in some cases. But what they can't control is the value of the currency that they're creating to pay off the debts that they're taking on. So only as long as the currency stays valuable can you play this game. But as soon as the value of the currency starts falling, then you you lose the tools that you had to manage the system. And you know, go back through financial history, and there are dozens, if not hundreds, of examples of countries that did kind of what we're doing right now. They, they borrowed too much money, they created too much currency to cover their debts, and the value of their currency collapsed. That's called a hyperinflation. <laughs> so Google hyperinflations in history. Mm -hmm. And you'll get this long list of, oh, Croatia, you know, 242,000% collapse in currency. And it goes on and on like that. Oh, yeah. Country oh. after country after country. And on that list is the United States during the uh, Revolutionary War um, and Germany in the 1920s. So it's not just banana republics. Big name yeah. countries have had hyperinflations in the past. And we're making all the same mistakes mm -hmm. that those countries made. Only we're doing it on a much bigger scale, and we're doing it globally because the past hyperinflations, you'll notice if you look at that list, happened yeah. to one country at a time in the context of, of a mostly sound money world. Well, now everybody's doing it. So yeah. the European Union and Japan and China and the United States are all heading off the same financial cliff at the same time. So what does that mean? That's that's the new element here. It's not that mm -hmm. this time is different and we can get away with this forever. It's this time is different and it's probably going to be a lot worse than uh, than what happened in the past. Uh, a lot worse because because the, the the all the countries and the economies seem to be sort of uni marching in the same direction at the same time. I mean, yeah, yeah. Like everybody is uh, is hyperinflating in a sense. Yeah. For, for instance, in, in Germany's hyperinflation in the 1920s, um, they had some special cir circumstances that led them to do what they did, and their currency collapsed. But everybody else in the world was on more or less a gold standard. And so the rest of the world had sound money, and, and Germany just imported some gold, backed its currency with that gold, and then went right back to having sound money a few years later. <laughs> and you, how are we going to do that now? 
with everybody collapsing at the same time. Well, it, it could be that we have to go back to gold again. We have to do a currency reset in which all the big countries devalue their currencies really aggressively against gold and then lock it in at some, you know, $10,000 an ounce gold level, which means that the dollar henceforth is a name for one ten thousandth of an ounce of gold. Mm -hmm. And that would give us a sound money system going forward. But the governments of the world, at least today's governments, won't give up that kind of power, the power to make money out of thin air. That's, no. that's paradise for a finance guy. I mean, ask any finance guy um, what he wants above anything else in the world. And, you know, you might think he's going to say, oh, love and understanding. He's, he will say, I want to be able to create money out of thin air. Right. Um, and all the, the finance guys running the big countries now have that power. So they won't mm -hmm. give it up easily, which means we have to have a gigantic crisis mm -hmm. to get Unfortunately. us there. And Unfortunately, but if we, just, if we just look at the dynamics, the, the mathematics, of course, John, with $22 trillion uh, debt load now in the United States, a 1% interest increase, and I think you said that, how much did we raise, 1.5% or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so two, $220 billion additional expense for our government with a $22 trillion, uh, $22 trillion debt load. And if we, if we go into another dip, another major crisis, how much are they going to have to print this time to try to keep things from spiraling out of control well see and that's why able, and will they be able to do it is the other question yeah well see that's why i can't go on forever because each cycle requires um a, an order of magnitude more debt yeah in the math doesn't work the system out yes well and and then see we're at the point now where we can never raise interest rates we found that out interest rates yeah. have to stay extremely low forever to keep the system from blowing up uh but that means you can't defend your currency when it starts to fall in value because, you know, we had a currency crisis in the 1970s in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yes, we and did. What, what did we do to stop it? We raised interest rates to between 15 and 20 percent. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine that? What I say now? frequently my first mortgage was a 17 and a half percent interest yeah. mortgage rate in, in 1981. So, uh, well, you can keep interest rates low, but that creates a lot of problems, too. For example, the pension funds, and you had a great... Uh, a, a bit of an article here that I thought was really, you know, people should read at dollarcollapse.com. Uh, if if you thought it couldn't ha it couldn't get a, any worse for Chicago, um, and and talk to us a little bit about it because John, the pension funds used to be able to, you know, to buy treasuries at, at reasonable rates and know with certainty that they can have the cash flow they need to meet the retirement requirements of their people in the pension funds. They can't do that anymore because there's no interest rates on those safe investments, so they're out there in the equity market. Another reason, I suppose, why the Fed has to keep the equity market from collapsing, right? But Chicago is one of those situations that's in big trouble. It's pension funds. New York City, I think, as well. I know our governor is starting to, to raise some alarm bells here in, in New York State, too. California, no doubt, has some issues. Um, talk to us a little bit about Chicago and and, and maybe some other issues that might come up that really, it's not like lowering, rate, uh, lowering rates are going to fix everything. It's going to create new problems, right? Yeah, well, Chicago is, is the, the epicenter of the pension crisis. But, Jay, we have to talk about gold. Will we have time if we spend some time yeah, in Chicago? Yeah, yeah, so how okay. does all this work out? So okay. we're going to print money. We're going to debase the currency. So we need gold. Well, this, the, the world that we're describing so far 
is paradise for precious metals, um, at least in theory. Because in theory, we haven't seen it yet, John. It's no? not doing very much since well, uh, since 2011. Well, yeah, not since 2011. But if you go back to 2000, gold was about 275 dollars US an ounce, mm-hmm. and so it's had a a pretty good positive run as the yes, currencies yeah. of the world have lost value. But it had a it had a spike, a parabolic spike, um, heading into 2011, which was way overdone. So we're we're somewhere towards the end of that correction just from a charting standpoint. Uh-huh. But the, the macro stuff, the, um, uh, the fundamentals are, are amazing now because you've got all the central banks easing, right? They're creating lots of new currency and either keeping interest rates very low or in the near future pushing them even lower, which means gold, which doesn't yield you anything, looks better and better against cash, which maybe yields you a negative return. And... Um, You've got all the governments of the world ramping up deficit spending, which turbocharges the money monetary side of this. You know, the more the governments borrow, the more central banks have to create currency to cover that debt. And you've got central banks buying gold where until very recently they were net sellers. So mm-hmm. you, you've got all these fundamental factors that that are drivers for higher precious metals prices. And now you've got Basel III, which is a new set of bank rules coming yes. online, which treat gold as a higher quality asset than in previous rules. So it mm-hmm. makes gold more attractive for banks to own, which is part of the reason for central bank buying in the past, but might also drive it in the future. So, John, I believe that Basel III requires physical gold to be held by the banks, uh, either in their own on their own facility or at a central bank. That's my understanding of it. So that means physical gold as opposed to paper gold. The paper gold, of course, can be created out of thin air and is. Um, so that requires, as I understand it, is that your understanding? Um, I, I trust you about stuff like that, Jay. I'm, yeah. I'm hearing well, I, it from I, people I, I trust, and it sounds like that's true. I did some digging into it, and I'm, I'm convinced that's the case. In fact, David McElvaney uh, asked me if I could dig out. He was looking for information, and I finally found it. Uh, from uh, if, you know, from the bank, the central bankers, central bank. Uh, so I, uh, that's what I believe, and I think that could make a big difference as well. Um, okay, so um, Basel three, and what are your thoughts about gold stocks right now, John? Well, if gold goes up, gold stocks will go up by some multiple of whatever gold goes up because they're just a lot more volatile. They're you know the the saying in the gold stock market is that uh, the gold miners are leveraged plays on gold. Um, yeah, so it's I, like buying a gold option or something like that. So the highest quality gold miners, uh, which that's, that's your forte there, you know, so uh, mm-hmm. uh, you've been finding a lot of exploration companies that are generating really extraordinary results. And those yeah. things will be like lottery tickets when, when people conclude that gold is going to continue to go up and silver will follow along with gold. Um, then you can buy gold, which people should do, but then people will start looking around and thinking, all right, how can I make real money in this market? Oh, yeah, that that gold miner just went uh, from $2 to $9 a share. I want to find the next one. And that, that's when things get really exciting. Yeah. Uh, and we're headed for that. If, if gold goes back up to its um, 2011 high, yeah. which it ought to do in the not-too-distant future in this cycle with all the other stuff that's going on, yeah. that would just 
turned the little gold miners into rockets. You know, some of them would be 10 baggers. In the, in the time it takes gold to go up by um, 40%, a lot of these little stocks would go up 10 times. So yeah. that's, that's the speculative but very interesting part of the financial system right now, I think. Interesting and exciting. I mean, we just talked to John Anderson earlier in the show today with Triumph Gold. I know that's one that you're aware of. And that, you know, there's option plays. And in fact, option plays on gold, gold in the ground. And if, if it's not economic to get it out now, but it's some higher price, well, it's worthless until you go through that higher price in which the economics start to work. Then all of a sudden, gold shares that are selling for virtually nothing become very, very valuable. Uh, intrinsic value goes up dramatically. And, uh, and, and that is one, however, that's the reason they bought that. Uh, they got involved in that story. Uh, but now they're making some discoveries that are starting to look extremely exciting. And, and that's just one of many that I follow. Many of them I know that, uh, that I follow, you follow as well. Great Bear is another one, Noble Resources. There's a host of others. Uh, I think we're just about out of time. One closing thought, John? Yeah, Jay, when you talk to those guys, tell them not to sell out too soon, Okay. The people yeah. who have shares in Great Bear and Novo and Triumph, uh, we want a thousand percent returns. Okay, so yeah, don't, well, that's, don't that's, let them sell out for double or triple. Well, that's always a that's always a consideration and a question and a concern that I have for sure. So, uh, John, it's so so good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the show, and uh, we'll look to have you back again sometime real soon. I hope. Great, thanks, Jay. All right, folks. Well, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, Alistair McLeod is going to be with me to discuss his March 21st article titled Preparing for the Next Move in Gold. So uh, we'll see you then. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com.